it's got to be about happiness. Like you can't, you can't be oriented to the business or to the money or to anything other than what makes you happy. Like in, and I think actually that most people, if they just took a step backwards financially, just a little tiny bit, or and, and oriented their lives to do that, they'd be happier. I think we we are very close to being very happy people, but there's like 20% or 30% where we're gunning for something we think we should do or should have or we think we want. But if we were to reel that back a little bit and be a little bit clearer on the 70 to 80% that makes us happy and then put 100% of our time and effort into that, bam, everything changes. So at the end of the day, it's about happiness. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and develop your path and journey. Today's guest is Brandon Green. Brandon is an award-winning entrepreneur with several businesses and is a nationally recognized speaker and expert on balancing success and purpose and leading with passion and practicality. Brandon grew up in Wyoming and Iowa as the eldest child in a Mormon household. A defining moment in his life came in his adolescence when, instead of going on a Mormon mission, he chose to join the global youth educational organization Up With People. After a two-year international tour with Up With People, Brandon then moved to the Washington, D.C. area and landed a job in sales and shortly thereafter transitioned to real estate in 2001. By 2006, Brandon co-founded the Keller Williams Capital Properties Real Estate Organization and together with his partners built it into a regional network of eight offices and $2 billion in annual sales in a little more than a decade. He's accomplished all of this without a college degree. In this interview, we get into Brandon's time growing up in Wyoming and Iowa, his tour with Up With People, his experience coming out as gay, his real estate career, and the many different ventures he has going on today. And so, without further ado, my interview with Brandon Green. So let's start this off at the beginning here. Where did you grow up? Sure. So I was born in Wyoming and spent the first 12 years of my life there in a small town called Rock Springs in the southwest corner. Not what most people think about when they think of Wyoming. They often think of like the Grand Tetons, Yellowstone, Jackson. That's very different from where I grew up in the southwest side and then moved to Iowa when I was 12 as my dad wanted to pursue his doctorate degree in philosophy and education. And so off we went to Iowa for a while and I ended up other than another year in Oregon where my dad had a job for a little while, we spent the rest of the time middle school through high school in Iowa. Okay. And how, how big of a town uh, is Rock Springs? Rock Springs is I think like 20,000 people. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, big for Wyoming. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a city in Wyoming. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's like, I don't know, top three, it took four, three or four okay. size city in Wyoming. I believe. Um, so, and my extended family still lives there. I've, my grandmother, who's in her 90s, and uh, aunts and uncles and cousins, a lot of people still live there. Okay. And what did, you, what did your parents do for work? I think you mentioned that um, maybe your dad was a teacher. 
Yeah, my dad was a teacher and then a um, a principal of an elementary of an elementary school and then a middle school and then an assistant superintendent and eventually a superintendent of schools. So my dad's path <clears throat> was all about um, education. My mom worked as a school secretary. She worked at a newspaper office. So she did a lot of operations and administration uh, when she when she could or when when the family needed her to. And, um, and so, you know, school was all day, every day <laughs> in our house. Right. Right. So it sounds like business wasn't really, I guess, table talk for you and your family growing up. No, not at all. Now my grandfather on my mom's side was an entrepreneur. He owned a, a business in Rock Springs that supplied the local mines with their big heavy equipment and machinery. So he was a very successful salesperson and then eventually went on his own and opened his own small business and, and did well. So, you know, there's definitely entrepreneurism on that side. And then there's some entrepreneurism on my dad's side with uh, one aunt in particular who uh, opened a couple different businesses in Mountain View, Wyoming, which is even smaller, a fabric shop and a flower shop. So other than those two examples in my extended family, no real examples or conversation about business or entrepreneurism. Right. Interesting. Okay. And did many of your peers growing up have like ambitions outside of Wyoming and kind of that, that small city? Like, or is it a place that people tended to stay for their whole lives? Well, it's definitely a place where people tend to stay their whole lives and uh, and same really in Iowa. Although I felt I, you know, as I was growing up in middle school and high school, it seemed people were a bit more ambitious to move beyond Iowa than I necessarily perceived in the Wyoming environment. Though I would say predominantly, it seems to be the case in most communities that people's aspiration uh, is is really where they see their parents to a degree. And they're like, okay, so I'll, I'll get through high school, then go to a good university that I can afford or, or however they're thinking about that and and um, get married and have a couple kids, get a good job and, you know, <laughs> move back. <laughs> you know? So yeah, I would say the majority of the people that I saw were headed on that path one way or the other. And uh, interestingly, they early on in my adolescence, I was like, I'm not doing that. Like that doesn't make any sense for me. Right. Yeah. You wanted to, you wanted to leave Wyoming. I wanted to, 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 to leave at that point, Iowa. Um, or Iowa, sorry. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, see the world. Mm-hmm. So probably yeah, as early as a freshman in high school, my orientation had changed to say, while I don't necessarily know what I want to do or create in my life, what I can see around me is not that. And so the only thing I could think to do was to leave and go on an adventure and, and figure out where that would be and how I would go about that. And I, of course, didn't have any idea as a freshman in high school what that meant, though it, I, I was feeling a pull to that or even early on. Interesting, yeah. It's interesting you say that because... I've had a couple of people say um, on this podcast, like you are what you see and you're a product of your environment. So sure. yeah. Yeah. To a large degree, we can't help it. We're all products of our, of our environments. Uh, 
it doesn't mean we have to be limited to that or, or even that that's wrong, right? I think sometimes in this conversation, it can sound like, you know, a little judgy. No, I, I mean, the only judgment I have now is happiness, right? <laughs> what makes you happy? And if, make, if what makes you happy is living in your hometown for your whole life, then awesome. Yeah. For me, though, it was clear. I was like, that's not going to make me happy. And while I didn't know what would, I was getting a clear sense of what would not at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great perspective. And so while you're in high school, um, you decided to not make or to not make the decision to go to a four-year college. So what did you do instead? Right. So I made two critical decisions in high school. One was not to go on a Mormon mission, which was a big thing because I grew up in a, in a Mormon household. And okay. for those who know anything about Mormonism, it's, it's very common that you graduate from high school and you go on a two-year Mormon mission. And then you go to high school and then you go to college. So I decided, well, I'm not doing that. That didn't make any sense to me. And um, I was not really interested in college. Now, I wouldn't say that I foreclosed that opportunity in high school. I didn't say I'm not doing it, though I said not now. I want to do something different. And, and what does that look like? So it was really clear to me by my junior year in high school after I saw another opportunity, which was to travel the world with an international musical organization called Up With People who happened to come to Des Moines, Iowa. And I saw their performance and saw that these were young, young people from 17 to 25 that seemed to be kind of like me and they were touring the world and singing and dancing and staying in host families and doing community service. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. <laughs> so I, by my junior year in high school, I had a focus. I was like, all right, that's my, that's my next step. And now I need to figure out how to make that happen, which was a quick obstacle in realizing that there was a tuition involved. They don't pay you to do that. You have to pay them. And it was, um, $12,500 a year, plus you needed a few thousand dollars for living expenses. So now I'm a junior in high school and I'm like, I want to get out. And I was like, oh, it's a $15,000 price tag. Eh. Right. And my yeah. parents were like, how are you going to pay for that? <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you end up paying for it? Or oh, the the cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I decided, well, I'm going to fundraise for it. So I started selling literally chocolate Santa Clauses and Easter bunnies. Uh, and I was like, that's a lot of chocolate Santa Clauses to raise. Okay. <laughs> I probably need another strategy. And I did like garage sales. I'm like, it's a lot of quarter items to raise 50. Like, that's not going to get me there. So I ended up doing all those things and coming up with a program where I convinced local business owners to buy into a subscription that was my travel adventures. And depending on the level of purchase of the subscription, they would get different things from me on the road. Now this was, this was, you know, email was just starting. Like, so it was going to be me handwriting notes to them. You know, if you bought a $250 subscription, then you'd get a handwritten note from me once a quarter. If you bought a $500 subscription, then it was going to be like once a month. And if you, if you gave me a thousand dollars, then I'd even send you something from one of these faraway foreign countries. And, uh, and it worked actually. I ended up ironically now, given the, my profession, I ended up going into getting connected with a group of real estate agents. And they sort of, I think probably thought I was sort of a, a, an inspiring young kid and they wanted to support me and they were a little competitive. And so I would go into like Margaret's office and she'd give me $250 and then I'd go into Tom's office and be like, 
Margaret just gave me $250. What do you think? Can you give it like 350? He's like, I'm giving you 500. And all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> you know, over a period of months, I ended up raising the money and I uh, graduated from high school and immediately went on the road with up with people thereafter. That's awesome. So that was kind of like your first entrepreneurial venture. That was my first on. Well, it wasn't actually my first entrepreneurial venture. My first entrepreneurial venture was when I was 14. I, I mowed lawns in, okay. uh, in the local trailer court that we were living in at the time. And I realized pretty quickly around lawn mowing that uh, I could charge 20 bucks for the lawn to be mowed and paid somebody else 15 bucks and have a Delta of $5. And so I created like this little fiefdom of lawn mowing in the trailer court that we lived in for two years. That was actually my first entrepreneurial venture. Okay. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, did you get a lot of, did you get a lot of pushback from like family or friends when you made, made the decision to do the up with people? Surprisingly, no. Uh, which you would have thought maybe I would have given my, my father's educational background and, and, and he was really the first person in his family to go to school and, and really climb out of poverty. And so he was a real big believer in that. And, and yet they really supported me. I think they were probably thinking I would go to college after the Up With People year, though they were excited about it and did everything they could to support me doing that. And I'm sure they were scared and nervous as parents would be but they were supportive. And, and I think they saw too, that I was raising the money. Like it was, look, it was going to happen. So, right. You know, let's make it work. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And so what is up with people like as it stands today, like as an organization? Sure. Well, it's still around today up with people.org. So it's an inter it's still an international educational organization. They've clearly had to adapt with COVID because they've been uh, predominantly a traveling cast of students all over the world. And they've had to, you know, that's been disrupted, but it's still on today. Now, as an adult, I've sponsored them in Washington, D.C. I've hosted students in the, in the cast. And um, um, so I'm very actively involved as an alumni. Though um, so I think that was really a turning point for me because it gave me a perspective on the world. And I realized in that tour that, that, Iowa is just Iowa and, and Wyoming is just Wyoming and the rest of the world is kind of different actually. <laughs> and it looks different. People are different. People have different ideas and thoughts. And that was interesting and curious to me. And I wanted to learn more about that and more about how the world could be so different in other places and people could think so differently than me. And what was that all about? That was my first introduction to that. Right. Right. And what did you do as part of the program? Um, I think you mentioned a little before that you did some like, performing arts as part of it? Yeah. Yeah. So I did some singing and some dancing in the program, but I also did a lot of, of, uh, sort of like logistical internship and marketing internships and sales internships. So there's the business of running up with people, although it's a nonprofit, but to get people from city to city takes quite a bit of effort. And so the students have opportunities to, to learn those different departments. And so I did a lot of that too, but mostly just had a great time staying with friends and host families and, and creating, um, bonds that, that are still alive today. That's great. What are your biggest takeaways or lessons learned from that whole experience? My biggest lesson learned in the up with people experience is just how diverse the world is and how, how rich it is in terms of culture and opportunity. And that I both saw the world all of a sudden is a really big place, but also a really small place. So 
incredible diversity, but a lot of connectivity around commonality, around what we all want to deliver for ourselves in our life, around happiness and so forth. So on one hand, I was like, wow, everything is so different. On the other hand, I was like, everything is so much the same. And so that, that my biggest lesson learned, I think, was just a global one, a global perspective and an appreciation for people and for travel, which carries still today. I, you know, we, we travel a lot now still. And uh, that, was, that interest was sparked during Up With People. Yeah, yeah. And so after you returned from, from Up With People, it wasn't long after until you decided to go back and, be a, and like work for them, like be a staff member, right? Right. Yeah. So I came back from a touring for one year as a student. And now I'm back in my parents' basement enrolled in community college. Hating it. Just, I was like, where am I? I, this is, none of these people seem motivated. I was like, ah, I, I barely made that a year, maybe a little bit more than up with people called me and said, Hey, would you like to come back as a paid staff member and help us by being part of the advanced crew that would go in in front of the cast and help set the cities up for them. And I was like, uh, yesterday, I'll be there. So <laughs> I did. I went back on the road again. This time it was different, though. I wasn't traveling with the cast. I was a part of the advanced crew. So I was staying for longer periods of time in places. Instead of two or three days, I would stay for six to eight to 10, 12 weeks and make sure that the city was ready for the cast's arrival make, you know, sell tickets for the show, sometimes find this facility, find sponsors, donations for meals, arrange host families, like you name it, I did it. And that was, that was, um, I would say that was my first professional experience, really. I mean, it was right. usually me and one other person and we were plopped into a city and we're like, you got 150 people arriving in six weeks and they're putting on a show somewhere and they need to stay somewhere and eat something like go. Right. Yeah. So it, you know, luck, if I was lucky, I had a host family in an office, but often, you know, I don't only have a host family, not an office. So it was a real game of hustle and work hard to create sometimes um, something out of nothing. Sometimes we would have some contacts from previous experiences, but most of the time we had to really create it ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how did you enjoy that experience? I loved it. Yeah. Loved it. I loved the adrenaline rush of, of literally seeing this deadline. Like I got to do all this stuff in six weeks and, and, and I love the reward of it and, and the meaningfulness around it and the, the people that we met. So uh, I loved it. I, at the same time, it was kind of a lonely journey because um, I, you know, I would have like one person or a host family. It wasn't the same as the cast experience when you had a bunch of people sure. around you. And I was only there for a few weeks, right? And then off I would go to another place. So, you know, it was by the time I got to Nicolette, Quebec, which was one of my stops, which I didn't speak any French, still don't. So you can imagine that was like a really difficult city to set everything up in. Mm -hmm. uh, by then it was winter and it was dark. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow. Maybe I need to have a plan for what's next because this probably isn't a super long-term thing. Right. Interesting. And was it, was it around this time they started to come to terms with being gay? Yeah. So I, uh, before I departed for Up With People the second time, by then I'd come out of the closet to myself and to my parents. And I was like, okay, I, I mean, I, for me, my experience was pretty immediate in that I knew almost immediately 
that I was gay and, and I was actually really settled with that. I didn't have a lot of like turmoil, though a lot of people in my life around me had turmoil. I was very much like, okay, well, here we are, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? As a matter of fact, I became very impatient with anybody around me that didn't immediately like get with the program and including my parents, which created a lot of tension, as you can imagine at that time. So right. by the time I got to Nicolet, Quebec, I had even actually met a guy for the first time in, in the previous city in Ohio. And I was going through, now I'm in my, you know, my, how old am I now? I guess I'm 20 or something. And I'm going through like you know, early teens emotions, like when you're 13 and 14 and you finally are 12 and you meet somebody that you're attracted to. And I mean, I see that now as an adult, that that is often the process when people come out, that by the time they do, they, their, their, their uh, development around their sexuality and their emotions around that is 10 years back, <laughs> right? <laughs> so here I am, I'm like uh, a 20-year-old, but with a uh, 13, 14-year-old brain and attracted to somebody who's attracted to me trying to figure all that out and, and alone in Canada in the dark. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was good also in, in, in hindsight, because it created a lot of time for me to look inward and, and try to understand what it meant to balance these two seemingly conflicted dynamics going on in my life. One was ambition. Like I want to accomplish something in my life. And the other was love. I wanted to be loved and loved. And it seemed to, to do that, I needed to like slow down the ambition or take a step backwards or move somewhere else. And the ambition was driving me forward. So I think it was really around then that I identified these two seemingly conflicting dynamics that would play out in a lot of different ways later in my life, though it started right there in Canada after, you know, quote unquote, falling in love with my first crush <laughs> and right. then going, oh, wow, what do I do with this? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so how was the whole coming out process like for you during that time? Like were a lot of friends and family like accepting at the time? Like was it a mixed bag? It was a mixed bag. I mean, I would say most of my friends were, but I had a few real big disappointments of people that I was really close to. And when I came out, it changed everything. And then, and the friendship uh, went away and that was really hurtful. I wasn't, I didn't understand that. Um, and with my family, you know, my, my parents were, shocked and they had to deal with their own stuff, right? They, they, there was a lot around religion there around culture and sure. stuff they had to kind of like figure out. And I give them enormous credit for saying, Hey, I love you. We love you. You're not, you know, we're not going to reject you, but we need some time to kind of like figure this out. And, uh, and I wasn't thrilled to hear that because I was like, well, what's there to figure out exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a mixed bag with that and, and the extended family. I mean, you know, when you're gay, you, you, you are constantly coming out, even as an, as an adult. And what you learn over time is coming out is really a, um, a skill set, <laughs> right? It becomes a muscle you have to exercise because you have to use it all the time. And those were my first early interactions with people. And so I had a mix of um, joy, elatement, and, and frustration and anger, uh, depending on what people's reactions were when it was hard for me to understand them. And at the time, right, this is now, we're talking mid to late nineties, right? So different than it is now even. For sure. And um, some of the stereotypes were 
even more severe than than some of the some of uh, of that now today in in um in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what views do um, does Mormonism and Mormons have on on uh, homosexuality? So I. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not as up to speed on that now, uh, but at the time, uh, the the stance was, um, you know, you you could be homosexual, but you couldn't, um, uh, what was it? The language like act on it, or you couldn't be a, participa- a participating homosexual. Like some like some of the weirdest stuff. It was almost <laughs> like you could be kind of closeted, and you can be gay and come to church, and everything's good, but like don't have sex, like don't bring a, don't bring a, you know, a same sex partner. And to me, I was like, that is incredibly hypocritical. Are you like, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. And that right. was, you know, love the, love this, the, what is it? Love the sinner, not the sin, you know, something like that. And, uh, and so I immediately was like, well, that's just not going to work for me. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in that, in that, or, or put myself into that environment where, um, how I am is um, judged as bad in any way, shape, or form, and so I extracted my, myself from from the church quickly, and um, and you know I think today it's evolved. I mean, it still has a lot of that in it, but it, I would say that it is more open and more welcoming now, certainly than it was in the mid to late nineties. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier about, um, I believe it was kind of like ambition and love and kind of how you're kind of struggling with, well, if I kind of focus more of my energy on the ambition, then the love will kind of decrease. How have you found over the years kind of those two aspects maybe not being as much mutually exclusive as Mm -hmm. maybe previously thought? Yeah. Well, for, so fast forward for years, it was kind of one or the other for me. I would, I would um, be out of a relationship and press hard on my, my business endeavors and do really, really well. And then I would fall in love. And I wouldn't say the business suffered because I still kept it going really well, but it would backtrack and I would pursue love. I mean, to quite extreme endeavors. I mean, I fell in love with a guy in Brazil um, and helped him move to Europe. And then I was back and forth to Europe every five or every, you know, two or three weeks. And wow. So, so there was like, uh, for years until I ended up meeting my husband, my now husband Christian in 2004, you know, it was just sort of this back and forth and back and forth, super intense back. Like, what am I doing with my life? I mean, I almost moved to London, right. I and almost moved to Brazil and, and bought a condo in Argentina and like, <laughs> So I, <laughs> I was trying to find myself in that. Eventually, though, I did realize that you can actually have both. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it took me a while to, to uh, work through that. And, uh, and now, you know, I've been with my husband since 2004. So although we haven't been married, obviously, that long, but we've been together that long. And, and, and so now I can see in hindsight that that was just part of my journey and figuring it out. And back to what I was saying earlier, that... A lot of that is just maturing emotionally when you start that process, uh, uh, that romantic maturity process, like at 20, you got some catching up to do. And then eventually you sort of figure out how to, to make that work, hopefully. Interesting. And so 
after working for up, up with people as a staff member, now what do you do? Like, is this when you moved to, to Baltimore? Yeah. So remember this guy I was in love with from Ohio. Uh, so he actually lived in Baltimore. We just met in Ohio. And so okay. I was like, well, I'm moving to, I'm moving to Baltimore then. <laughs> so I, I ended my time with up with people and I moved to Baltimore and, you know, I didn't tell anybody that's quite why I was doing it. I was looking for quote unquote opportunities and got to Baltimore in uh, 1998, late 1998 and uh, no job, no apartment and certainly didn't want to disclose the fact that I had no plan uh, and quickly realized like you need a job to get an apartment actually. And you kind of need an apartment to get a job. And so, you know, I lived in my car for a short while for about a week until I kind of figured it out. And I convinced somebody to rent to me, even though I didn't have a job, I used, used my sales skills, I guess, and got a small studio apartment in downtown Baltimore and got a job at a staffing company as I decided to figure out, I was pretty sure I was going to go to school. I didn't know where, how, or what that was going to look like, but I wanted to focus on my relationship and I needed to make a little bit of money. So mm -hmm. that's where it all started in Baltimore in a staffing agency in 1999. Interesting. And I'm guessing you didn't particularly enjoy the experience at the staffing agency. Uh, actually, it wasn't bad. Uh, my okay. very first staffing agency job, though, I got fired. So uh, three months in, the boss came and said, hey, why, why is performance lacking? And this feels like a, you know, a dysfunctional culture. What's going on here? And she pulled the small team together. Nobody raised their hand. And I'd come from up with people, remember, where you share your feelings and share how you're thinking. So I was like, I raised my hand. I was like, well, Christina, I think it has to do with your management style. Well, she didn't really like that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and on the spot, she went over to the closet, grabbed a box, went to my little cubicle, packed my five things I had into a box and shoved the box in, in my face and said, great, well, then you're fired. Get out. And I was like, wow. Oh. Right. Not at all what I was imagining could happen as a result of that exchange. So, you know, three months into Baltimore, I crawled back to my apartment in downtown Baltimore, a studio apartment where the only thing I had was a grand piano because my grandmother gave me a thousand dollars. I'm like, I'm going to buy a grand piano. So I, I bought a used <laughs> grand piano, literally had an air mattress and a grand piano. That's, that's so funny. <laughs> so I'm in there. So I called my boyfriend. I'm like, oh, I just got fired. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to talk. I was like, oh my gosh. So I ended up getting dumped. And now I'm like, what am I doing in Baltimore? No job, no boyfriend, which is the whole point of the whole, the exercise with a grand piano and an air mattress and like two <laughs> boxes of ramen noodles and no money. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, that's funny. Yeah. That was, that was like close to like a, like rock bottom. It was I kind of imagine. a, it was a, it was a bit of a bottom moment there. I was mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. I very much felt sorry for myself very i was like cried for a week and finally my mother was like well i don't know what you think you're going to do here but you got to get your act together you've got everything you need to succeed so get up off that floor and start figuring it out mm -hmm. like oh okay okay and so i started actually going door to door to businesses in downtown baltimore giving them my resume and a business card and i ran into a recruiter who recruited me to another staffing company but it was an IT staffing company in Silver Spring, Maryland. And, and that stuck. I ended up getting a great job there, had a great sales trainer 
who taught me what it meant to manage sales and a pipeline and have scripts and dialogues and how to cold call a hundred calls a day and, and book appointments and follow up. And I eventually moved to DC because it was the commute on the train was, was annoying. And I did really well there. Actually, I, I liked it. It was a pretty hardcore sales environment complete with a bell when you got a sale in the middle of the room. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked the energy and I liked the, that I could see a direct correlation between my income and my activities. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So um, I could actually make some real money here. Now, this was right as the IT bubble was bursting in the right 2000 timeframe. Right. So just as I was getting really good traction, my clients started going out of business and not hiring. And it was around then that I said, maybe this isn't as long a term as I thought. Uh, by, I was making like 100K a year. So at that point, I had no desire to go to school. And I watched an infomercial, incidentally, one night about how to buy real estate with no money down. And I really didn't have any money. I was spending it all. And I was like, well, I could do that. So I ended up buying the class, the, getting the CDs. And studying the course, and within a couple months, I bought a piece of property on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. for $100,000 okay. and used a government FHA loan and borrowed $3,000 from one of the only friends I had at the time. And that was my first piece of real estate and my first entry into the business. Interesting. So you, your first entry into the business was as an, as an investor instead of an as agent? As an investor. That's okay. right. Yeah. Well, my plan was to renovate it and sell it for a profit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I did. And my real estate agent said, huh, you, you, maybe you should get your license. I think you'd actually be good at this as a career. And given what was happening with the information technology field at that time, I was like, mm, maybe I should switch. So I, you know, spent a couple months doing both and then quickly realized I could get clients by deploying the same skill set I had in the IT staffing company. But instead of cold calling, I would door knock in neighborhoods. And after about a hundred door knocks, somebody was like, I don't know who you are, but let's give you a shot. And I started listing houses. Okay. And uh, so like, what was your day-to-day -day role as a real estate agent back then? Uh, I would spend eight, sometimes 10 hours a day knocking on doors until I got a listing. And so Jeez. just, uh, you know, random doors. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't have any contacts, right? And right. Facebook ads. So I was like, oh, well. so uh, that's what I did. And then eventually I got enough clients. I was like, well, I need to spend some time servicing the clients I was getting. And so my eight to 10 hours a day became 12 to 14 hours a day. And I just worked like that for three years, really, you know, there wasn't a lot of magic to it. I just put in more time and effort than everybody else. And, and so became, you know, rookie of the year and did really, really well early on. And, and a lot of people, especially in real estate, well, how did you do that? I'm like, well, I, I mean, if you literally go out and knock on enough doors, somebody actually will, will say, well, yeah, I'll give you a shot. And, and, but most people just don't do that level of activity. And I could, I, and I learned from my previous job, there was a correlation between activity and income. So I needed to ramp up the activity until I could see a correlation with the income. And, uh, and that's all I did for three years. And I, I would also host open houses for more senior agents who didn't want to do them anymore. Um, okay. And then, you know, by year three, I had more business than I could handle. 
and started to uh, ask myself, well, how am I going to grow this exactly? Because I can't spend any more time on this and I'm burning out working so much. And, you know, uh, that's when I started to map out a potential broader vision to open a company and, and ended up meeting somebody who became my business partner in doing that. And, and the whole game started to change. Interesting. What are your biggest takeaways and lessons learned from those, I guess, times of just knocking on doors to get clients? I, I would say that there is an overestimation on skill and an underestimation on effort. And I, that's still the case today. And so I had no real skill in real estate and I had a good personality and could smile and I just put in the effort and, and won. And so I think that was a huge lesson for me. I was like, wow. Now, effort doesn't always win the day. There are other times when something else needs to come into play. But when it comes to sales, a lot of times effort does win the day. And so that became an important lever that I would rely on many times throughout my career. Right, right. And so you have all this success um, early on as a real estate agent. When do you start to think about starting your own business? 2004, 2005, I, you know, by now I've got an assistant and one other person that my assistant became my husband later, many years later, <laughs> we started dating relatively soon. Remember love, ambition. Right. Um, <laughs> and so by uh, 2005 though, I did a transaction with a Bowman Keedy who was another real estate agent. And I was thinking about opening my own company. He was thinking about it too. And he said, what if we did something together? And so by 2006, we'd really mapped out a vision for a regional real estate company that would be transforming lives, careers, and communities through real estate. And, and we brought some additional partners on and launched our first office by partnering with Keller Williams. as okay. uh, Keller Williams is a franchise and, and, and deciding to locked down the territory in the district district of Columbia and launched our first office in 2006 together. And that was the beginning of being, um, the journey of being a businessman and, and starting to go from salesperson to business person. I had no idea what the context was or what that really meant at the time, but mm -hmm. I can see now I was like, Oh, that was actually opening a business. Previously that was running a good sales book. But now in 2006, I was evolving from a good, great book of sales to actually owning and operating and figuring out what it meant to be in business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what are, the, what are the big distinctions between those two that you figured out over these years? Well, in business, you can't entirely rely on effort, ironically. And many of the things that are, make you successful as a salesperson actually don't work so well as a business person. For example, Great salespeople often have to have a lot of independent energy to like push things through. In a business, you got to have other people around you. And if it's all about you in the business, it can be difficult to empower people to do other things and you can't ever grow it or get it off the ground. Skill set, right? Sales skills are, are people skills, conversion skills, scripts and dialogues, communication. Business skills are like financial management. Remember, I didn't go to school. So, you know, you know strategy, you know, uh, people management, metrics, like, wow, what's all this, right? So hmm. all of that became a whole new journey for me to learn some of the distinctions between sales and business. Interesting. And uh, maybe provide a brief overview of um, 
the company today? Sure. So we we continued to grow it for years, and today we have seven different locations in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, and a, and about a thousand real estate associates. And um, what do we have? Thirty five, forty full time staff members. So you know, it's been quite a ride over yeah. the years. Yeah. So, yeah. I can imagine. And what's your role? So my role, uh, two, two and a half years ago, I stepped out of running it day to day. So I, for quite a number of years, I was running it and growing it. And uh, I hired uh, a COO to run it. And today I am principal broker. And um, what that means is I'm responsible for all of the real estate transactions that all the associates do. And so I often say, you know, big problems and big opportunities come my way. <laughs> but the day-to-day of running the company now, we've got a team that does that. Okay. So you're involved in like kind of the, the big closing processes, it sounds like. Yeah. It's more like, you know, when things go wrong, okay. badly wrong, which is not very often. I mean, you know, we'll have one or 2% of transactions will, something will materialize that requires legal counsel and some additional effort. So I'm, I'm involved in that. And then also big strategic opportunities, mergers, acquisitions, big recruits, that sort of thing. Okay. So, so I now today I'm spending, you know, let's call it 10 hours a week ish on the business, which has given me an opportunity to start to pursue some other things. Uh, You know, I, I really got to a point in my career where I was like, all right, almost 20 years in the real estate business with a lot of success and a lot of experience in a lot of different areas of real estate, what do I want to do next? Because the, the growing of all those real estate companies also required learning and understanding and then in many cases, launching a variety of other businesses that were part of that suite of services like home staging, interior design, uh, you know, title companies, you know, you know uh, uh, real estate investment and development, like other sort of things. And so I eventually got to a point a couple of years ago where I was like, okay, so I'm 40, I get this at the time I was 41, I'm 43 now. It's like, what am I going to do next? And how do I translate all of the skills that I've learned in, in real estate for the last 20 years and leverage that into something for the next 20 years? So that's what I've been doing a lot of recently has been right. thinking about that, strategizing and building out what will be uh, some new companies coming up. Right. Yeah. A great time to to think too these days. Yeah, exactly. And I think the the pandemic has clarified a lot of my thinking and has accelerated some of the concepts that I'm working on and has given me in office time, right? You know, for the last couple of years I've been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking, a lot of presenting, and a lot of writing. I've I've written a memoir, which I needed to I need to do something with it now. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and that was mostly my, my internal journey of pivoting myself. Though then the pandemic hit, I'm like, wow, I'm like sequestered to my own home office day after day after day. What that, that, that concentration of energy has been really beneficial to me because it's allowed me to clarify and launch some new things that will start to show up on the map in 2021. Got it. That's cool. And so, so we launched 2006. Do you have like a year, maybe a year and a half before the Great Recession hits? Not really. I mean, the, 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 the Great Recession, which started in real estate, really started in 2005, in August of 2005. And we, it wasn't obvious. It was <laughs> obvious only in hindsight. 
So the, by the, by six, seven, like we, we, we were deep into it, but we, it was good for us because we were the small young company. We had no debt and lots of time and our competitors were heavily leveraged and had to deal with that. So right. the real estate recession, while very difficult, right? I'm not minimizing it. It was very difficult in a lot of ways was also incredibly opportunistic for us. And we were able to launch offices in that period of time. Interesting. So since you're so small and just starting out, you had the agility to kind of make, make those different decisions and take advantage of the opportunity. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. And that's not uncommon. You see a lot of amazing companies. It's happening now. Some mm-hmm. of the, the most amazing companies you'll hear about in 2025 are brewing right now and right. Uh, are launching right now and trying things out and experimenting. And by, 20, by 2030, they're going to be on somebody's podcast and be like, wow, how did you do it? Right? It's all happening again. So <laughs> recessions are some of the best times, I, I think, to launch companies. Yeah. I mean, in the, I think Uber and Airbnb and some others too came out of the, sure. the recession. We have yeah. so many examples of this. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So there's a new crop that's building right now. It'll be really interesting to see what that looks like in five years. Yeah. Yeah, it will. And um, what are some of the lessons that you learned around business and entrepreneurship um, during the time when you were just starting out? Well, I, I quickly learned the importance of financial management. And, 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 and understanding that cash is cash, profit is profit. They're related, but not the same thing. And, and how to manage to a profit and loss statement and, and how to manage debt and equity and like all that stuff that I never had an opportunity to learn. I had to learn um, taxes, whew, right? So, you know, I went through a lot of uh, several years early on where I was just a mess with that because I really thought, I was bringing my sales thinking into business, which was, I just need another sale and I can work this out. Well, that's not the case in business. You, you can't, you can't uh, put more revenue on a bad margin, right? Mm-hmm. You, you've got to actually fix the margin issue before you, you know, to get any, anything to happen. So, but I went, I, at that time, I didn't even know what that meant. So I was um, resistant to, to the idea for a while until I finally had a really good, coach who popped me in the nose one day and said, look, your, your financial goals don't match your financial skills, not even close. So until you close the skill gap around your, your finances, you're not going to get to the point of wealth that you envision for yourself and for your, for your life. And you, you know, you're a little behind on that. Actually. I was like, Ooh, uh, okay. (laughs) He was right. Right. And, and that began a, a journey of me first changing my thinking about that, which was, was minimalizing it by saying things like, well, I'm good at sales. I don't need to be good at you know, financials. I, I'm going to hire somebody else to do that. I'll delegate it out and they'll figure it out. Well, finally, after getting burned so many times, it's like, well, maybe that doesn't work. And so I started to take on a new thought pattern, which was, I'm actually really good at this. I just need to learn it. And I started diving in and learning it. And I credit my partner, Bo Mankiti, for this because he, he graduated from Harvard with a degree in business. So like this guy had the, the skill set around this that I did not. And so working with him for years gave me a lot of insight on how to do all that. And um, 
so I would say one huge bucket is like financial management. How do you make money work and business work from a financial standpoint? The other big bucket is just people management. How do you build teams and, and hire and fire and train and develop and retain and recruit and, and deal with the humans? Like they're little crazy creatures, <laughs> right? But to grow a business of any size or scale, you got you to figure it out. And, and being a great salesperson it doesn't mean you're going to be a good manager. As a matter of fact, most salespeople are terrible managers, but some salespeople are amazing managers. And I wanted to be a great manager. And that meant I needed to mature in how I thought about people and how I dealt with people and, and created opportunities for people and made that happen. So those are the two big things, like financial structures, like the nuts and bolts of business, and then people. How do you how do you do that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And maybe at like a high level, like how are you able to build like a real estate business as the great recession kind of, and that real estate bubble burst? Like, well, how, like, how, how was like, how did that work? Well, uh, the, the majority of building a great business, it, a real estate business is recruiting. So you want to bring more people onto your team. And so we figured out that we had something really compelling to offer around the services that we were providing in the company and our vision for the company, which was to transform lives, careers, and communities through real estate, and that we could inspire people to be part of a bigger cause and then take what was often a very transactional relationship in real estate and create a more community-based relationship and say, hey, you know, come over here. We're doing even more than just selling houses. Selling houses is good. We want you to keep selling houses, but we actually want to change the, the environment and the community and the region around real estate and give back in a different way. So do you want to come and learn a little bit about that? Right. And people were like, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. That's intriguing. Well, I'm open to a conversation because during the recession, everything was in flux, right? Yeah. So a lot of things that were very solid all of a sudden become not so solid. We're seeing that again now. Those become huge recruiting opportunities. And so the companies win the, the, the companies that win are the ones that recruit well. And we were really good at recruiting and bringing on great talent during the recession. Got it. Okay. And so now um, is also a very difficult and interesting time with COVID. So have yeah, you and the leadership team yeah. had to adjust the business um, with all that's going on now? Sure. Yeah. No, it's, it, it, it looks in many ways like it did back then in 2008 and nine. And I think the, the difference this time, though, is we have multiple things happening. We've got the health crisis, which has just made the functioning of business rapidly change, moving everything online, as an example, mm -hmm. and having to operationalize that and figure out what that looks like. But we're also seeing this acceleration now of all these other dynamics around technology and innovation and, and what people, um, what consumers are expecting from real estate providers. And, and, and what the real estate provider skill set needs to be. You have, so you have sort of these macro dynamics playing out in part by COVID, but playing out in part by just the natural evolution of the, of the economy. But you also have inner industry dynamics going on where the, the real estate industry has been impacted by a number of new players who've come on with technology propositions. And some of the more traditional players have had to wrestle with what degree do we take that on and what degree do we continue to provide you know, more standard services. I think what is unique about real estate is it's the epitome of the physical. And so, whereas a lot of businesses can go entirely digital as we've seen, 
where you live still exists in, in physical form. <laughs> and so uh, while a lot of people will do a lot of things physically or, or, or digitally, uh, if you're going to live in a house for a while, most people still want to see it. Right? right. So the business has had to evolve technologically, but has also had to say, and we're a physically based business. And what does that mean? And how do you wrestle with the two? Right. So it's, you know, we, it's been exciting actually to watch the evolution of the business at a high level, but also on the ground level for us locally and how we make changes to the operating on a day-to-day basis. So as a point, as a case in point, we're looking at office space and saying, as many businesses are, well, how much do we really need? I think it's a lot less than we did before. And so while we still want and need a physical footprint, we don't need the square footage that we have had, but we're in leases and and a lot of the buildings we own. So you can't just like snap your fingers and be like, well, let's, I don't know, cut that in half. Well, no, (laughs) we're going to have to deal with that in the coming years and figure out how to make that into an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting how it's going to all, all evolve over time. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So getting to these last few questions here, um, what does your daily routine look like? So today, I, I am very much still focused on in my home office. I've set myself up a nice little studio here, and I will spend most of my time um, in Zoom calls and on the phone, although I've started to push myself to have a two or three outside of the home office appointments in the park, having coffee or something just to get out of the home office. Right. So I, my, my day though is, is segmented in a couple of different places. Um, I spend part of my day on the real estate business, which is mostly uh, managing opportunities and challenges as it relates to the personnel and the business overall and some real estate transactions. So working with outside counsel, working with the leadership teams, just trying to make sure we're moving in a good direction around that. So that's a portion of my day. Um, Another portion of my day, I'm doing a lot of personal brand content work right now. I've really decided to invest in my personal brand over the last couple of years. And that's been exciting. I brought on a team for that. So we're producing content now on most of the major platforms. We're rolling out a newsletter. This is all personal brand stuff. Okay. which is trying to distinguish between the business brand and the personal brand is a very interesting thing. So I'm spending, you know, a few hours a day on that. And then I have a new company I'm working on. It's called chapter two ventures and it's a company to support small business owners from a learning and an investing standpoint. And so that'll come online next year, but your audience gets a little preview on that. So we're developing a learning platform with learning products for small business owners that aren't really available much right now. For example, how do you read a profit and loss statement? What do you do if you get sued? How do you read a commercial lease? Like stuff like that, that nobody teaches you is necessary in business. So an online learning platform for that. We've got a a product that we're going to roll out to help businesses with their finances as that is a big issue and then an investment vehicle. And then I also have um, a big hospitality project I'm working on in Maryland. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm excited about that. So stay tuned for that. Hospitality, I think, is a huge opportunity, even though it doesn't look like it. It's it's being disrupted in all levels across the board. And so we're we're playing around with some investments around that right now to see how we can uh, maximize some opportunities that will be, I think, on board by 2023, 2024. So, you know, I, I'm the epitome of an entrepreneur. Like I'm doing a lot of things and I like it that way. Right. And, you know, 
my day is often very diverse in and out of a dozen or so different businesses, figuring out how I can help move the ball forward for them. That's awesome. And uh, are you an early riser, would you say? Uh, so I get up at 5.30 most mornings okay. yeah. and, I, and, and I go to the gym for 6.30 and I go to the gym uh, four days a week and I work with a personal trainer, come home around 7.30 and do some meditation, some eating, get ready. And I usually have my first call around 9.30 or 10. And then I'll work until 7, 7.30. Then my husband comes home. He's an entrepreneur as well. And, um, you know, uh, and then we'll sometimes share dinner, but usually I eat before he comes home and then, um, we'll watch a show <laughs> and then, yeah. and then that's it. And then yeah. I, I go to bed around 10 30. Uh, and then he goes to bed at like one in the morning. <laughs> so we have a very <laughs> interesting. Yeah. And he gets up at 10. Right. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so what made you decide to focus a lot um, or make the decision to, to build and focus a lot more of your attention on the, on your personal brand a couple of years ago? So uh, what I've learned over the years is businesses and opportunities within them come and go, right? But what doesn't is you. And so the center point of, of, of a real great professional career actually is your brand, your personal brand. And it's yesterday's resume is today's online social media profiles and content that you're producing. And so I, when I started to have some time out of running my company day to day a couple of years ago, I was like, what's going on with this whole personal brand space? And I thought, well, this is a real growth sector is helping people develop their own personal brands separate from, but connected to the work they're doing professionally. And, and I've, I've, just found that to be a worthy journey internally to clarify what I'm up to and to help me move forward into some things. But then I also, uh, because I'm involved in a lot of different things, it becomes the center point of that. Right. And right. so, you know, you can come to, to the personal brand and visit a lot of the business endeavors that I'm in part of. So, and I'm having fun with it. I wouldn't say I've got to figure it out by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a, it's a, a conduit for me to get my thoughts out in the world and to, and package them in such a way that they can be helpful for other people along, along their journey too. Awesome. That's great. And as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say that at the end of the day, I've got two big driving forces. Love is still a huge driving force for me. L romantic love, of course, with, with my, my husband and my family, they're just love of humans and love of helping people move forward with their life and mentoring people and, 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 and realizing how, uh, at the end of the day, that's really what matters, right? There's a lot of things we do, but it's really our relationship and how we show up for those relationships that matters the most. So there's, there's like that really is a driving force for me. And that materializes in a lot of mentor relationships and a lot, I'll, I'll always take time to have a conversation with someone. And then the other is I just actually really love business because it's, it, the, my, it, it channels my ambition in a productive manner. Cause I have that like drive. I'm like, ah, right. And it needs to go into a box in a, in a really good way. And right. business also, if you do it well, creates its, its own little uh, uh, sort of circular 
thing where you're creating value, which gives you more opportunity to create more value, which gives you more opportunity to create more value. And I find that fascinating. It's like this little game. And um, so whether it's products or services, like you're bettering the world by creating these little units that become self-sustaining in their little value creation. And if, if you do it well, it's often called a product market fit, then bam, things start to take off. And that's, that's fun. And, and so for me right now, a lot of that tends to be gamified a little bit. And, um, uh, but that's a big driving force for me is figuring out how to maximize those opportunities, both from a business standpoint and from a, a personnel or a people standpoint. Awesome. And then lastly here, before I wrap up, what advice or words of wisdom around achieving, achieving great success, success in business yeah. would you like to leave the people listening? It's got to be about happiness. Like you can't, you can't be oriented to the business or to the money or to anything other than what makes you happy. Like in, and I think actually that most people, if they just took a step backwards financially, just a little tiny bit or, and, and oriented their lives to do that, they'd be happier. I think we, we are very close to being very happy people, but there's like 20% or 30% where we're gunning for something we think we should do or should have, or we think we want. But if we were to reel that back a little bit and be a little bit clear on the 70 to 80% that makes us happy and then put 100% of our time and effort into that, bam, everything changes. So at the end of the day, it's about happiness. What really gives you that feeling of fulfillment, of joy, of of excitement. That is a lifelong journey to pursue, by the way. I don't think that's something that you're like, oh, I, I found it. On a Tuesday at 10 o'clock, I found happiness, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> it, it evolves, it changes. But if it, if it becomes the compass to which you drive all of your efforts and your ideas, then over time you get better at it and it gets clearer and it becomes even more fulfilling. So my hope for people is that they get out of the rat race, which is I will be happy as soon as dot, dot, dot. As soon as I have the next promotion, as soon as I make more money, as soon as I open the next business, as soon as I launch the next product or sell the next business, then I'll be happy. X, X. That's not the way it works. It is, you've got to find the happiness now. And if you do that, everything else tends to work out. Awesome. That's a great place to end this. Brendan, thanks again for coming on. This was great. Chase, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Where can people go to learn more about um, KWCP and also find you online? Yeah, go to brandongreen.com and, and you can see me there. I've got a new refresh coming this fall of 2020 of that website, which will be exciting. Go there, subscribe to my newsletter. I've got a brand new newsletter I'm starting out this fall called the Brandon Green Report. And I'm working hard to curate some really valuable content around that. And then you can follow me on various platforms. You know, I'll just give you one, but uh, Instagram, Brandon A. Green. But all of that can be found at brandongreen.com. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.